Hello, Australia. This is episode three of the Layback Podcast. This podcast was filmed and you can find it over on YouTube or through the links on thelayback.com. In this episode, I sit down with Simon Carter of Onsite Photography, a name many Australian climbers would be familiar with as it appears on the bookends of many an Australian climbing guidebook. Since the early 90s, Simon has been producing climbing photography and is described by the editor of Rock and Ice magazine as arguably the greatest climbing photographer of all time. Simon took a chance on the climbing photography career path, not knowing where it would lead, and he's worked immensely hard in pursuing that dream. Let's get into it. What attracted you to photography in the beginning? Uh, well, uh, as a 15-year-old boy, I was very attracted to photography because, well, my thoughts were that photographers had the best jobs in the world, which involved traveling the world and going to exotic islands and photographing beautiful models on the beach. And that was my 15-year-old's sort of impression of what photography photographers did and I just thought that is got to be the best job I want that <laughs> um so yeah I just no I, I mean been a little bit silly there but I, that was kind of the thinking yeah. I just thought photographers had the best jobs and I just wanted to do that and yeah. uh I also got really quite young on I got really into the creative side of it like I built a dark room in the laundry and then in the bathroom I turned it into a dark room and just started mucking around, taking photos, developing them, printing them. Um, and yeah, somehow my parents tolerated me taking over the bathroom and doing all these silly things. And did, did it, I mean, that would have created quite a smell under the house or? Ah, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> what was the subject of photography like before you were taking climbing photos? What sort of things would you take photos of? People or places? Or? Yeah, just kind of what I call sort of run-of-the-mill arty stuff. So yeah. I'd sort of, I grew up in Canberra and I'd just walk the streets of Canberra and, and do time exposures and do architectural shots. And, and then I'd sort of set up a little studio and do little portraits in the studio and, and stuff. And it was just dabbling with the medium really okay. um, and just sort of getting my head around how the medium worked and stuff. And, and sometime after that you discover climbing. How did that happen? Yeah, so I discovered, well, I really got into photography when I was 15 and then I got into climbing when I was about 17. Uh, and I ended up changing uh, to college for the last two years of high school because that school, Narrabunda College, had a really good photography course with a really good reputation. And it was there at Narrabunda College that I got into climbing. Mm. We ended up, um, there was an outdoor education course and we ended up building a, a climbing wall on the outside of the gymnasium okay. and I was right next to the photography department so I just basically lived there and <laughs> we built this climbing wall. I mean I probably need to bring it back a bit to when I was younger because yeah. it all sort of, the climbing thing all sort of started for me when I was about 15 as well. Okay. Um, I actually discovered a couple of books in the school library. Yeah. Um, one was The White Spider which mm -hmm. is the story of the first Ascent of the North Face of the Iger. Yep. And the other one was Chris Bonington's Everest the Hard Way. So two like real classic mountaineering literature books. And uh, those books just totally inspired me. And I just really thought I want to do mountaineering. That is the ultimate sport or thing that you can do. It's like, to me, it was way more exciting than any team sport. Mm. And, and I just, that's what I was really interested in doing. And I thought that to be good at mountaineering, you'd, naturally have to be good at rock climbing mm. and so i thought okay i've got to get into climbing mm. and get good at this so anyway we built a climbing wall on the outside of the gym at in uh, at college there and i discovered i wasn't very good at all <laughs> and i just found that really frustrating i i'd like i was quite skinny uh, my nickname was actually skinny and i thought because i was light i'd actually be quite good at rock climbing but i I wasn't and uh, so I got really frustrated and I just poured a lot of energy into getting better and over about the course of six or 12 months I just gradually got better and and I got more and more into it and obsessed by it and and then 
I just started bouldering at different places around Canberra. There's okay. a place called Torrens Shops, a shopping centre. You could climb on the brickwork. Okay. And you know, I'd go there a lot and I'd met other climbers from there. Mm. And some really good climbers from Canberra sort of saw that I was just super keen and they just started taking me out climbing with them and took me under their wing. Mm. And it went from there. Okay. So there was a, a bit of a scene going on at Canberra in that particular point in time. What was yeah, it like? Yeah, it was a really small scene. Yeah. So really small and... If someone was keen, and I was young and keen, uh, they kind of took you under their wing and mentored you, and mm. uh, it was awesome. They were so generous and helpful, and yeah, we'd go out to Broomba Rocks or on trips to different places. Okay. Yeah. Were you taking photos of climbing at that point in time? Like, did they start to gel together then? Yeah, they, they instantly sort of was one of the subjects I instantly started dabbling with as soon as I got into climbing I started photographing it but I always dismissed it as anything that you could shoot seriously okay um I just thought well you just can't make a living out of shooting climbing photography Mm. um no one had or did Mm. in Australia at that point Uh, so this is back in the 1980s okay um yeah, so I really just dismissed that idea. Okay. But, I mean, you went on to study photography after school, right, at, at TAFE? So- well, yeah, TAFE was night school. So what happened is I finished year 12 and <clears throat> I instantly got a job, uh, luckily, out of high school to um, working at a couple of photography departments at the Australian National University. So my first job was in the prehistory and anthropology department and I did that for six months. Then I got a transfer to the uh, photography department at the Research School of Biological Sciences. So I basically worked at the university for about two years out of school. And I was doing a little bit of photography. Um, but I ended up actually spending most of my time working in the darkroom. So like printing DNA gel smears, those little bands where the scientists would be comparing the the DNA and stuff, or I might be having to print electron microscope photographs. So really badly exposed negatives, I'd have to turn into a usable print for the scientists for their research. And so while I was working there, I studied um, photography at night school at, at TAFE on the side. So basically after about two years of working in the darkroom and studying photography at TAFE, I just, I just became really disillusioned with photography and I just I felt that what I was doing was never going to lead to the kind of photography that I wanted to do like that vision you had when you were young of traveling the world (laughs) here I am stuck in a dark room this is so far from traveling the world and shooting beautiful women that it's just (laughs) not gonna this is just not gonna work (laughs) and there's a little thing that happened at TAFE too that um kind of was a sealed the deal a bit for me in that uh at TAFE, we were given the opportunity to sh- – well, we had to shoot a portfolio mm. at the end of the year. And so I went, Beauty, I'm going to shoot a portfolio of rock climbing images. And I went to a lot of trouble. Like I did some montages. I did some really arty stuff. And then I went out to Broomba Rocks and you know did the abseil, abseiling down and photographing the climbers thing. And I was like, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I handed him my – portfolio of 12 photographs and I failed the uh the final portfolio but the folios that did really well were really cliched things like nudes on rocky beaches and just really arty stuff which or the classic kind of arty stuff and I felt really disillusioned like that the whole idea of what an arty photograph is seemed to be quite restrictive into real to me, it was actually felt really cliched, you know, like a nude on a rocky beach. I mean, how unoriginal can you be, please? But that's the stuff that did well. So here I am having gone to quite a lot of physical effort um, and not doing very well. I just thought, oh, this is rubbish. I'm, I'm out of here. And so I saved up while I was working in that job and myself and my friend Mike Law-Smith, who was a really strong Canberra climber, we headed off to France climbing for two, uh, well, I travelled around Europe for six months. We spent two months full-time climbing in France in 1987. Went to Bukes and Verdon and got exposed to this whole world out there of climbing. And 
you know, saw Patrick Elanger, uh, I climbed with Dale Goddard and Christian Griffith and in the Verdon Gorge. And yeah, you know, I just had my eyes open to this amazing world of climbing. Yeah, so I came back to Canberra, uh, to Australia after that and just gave up photography and barely touched my camera for years. Yeah, and you went into, you went to La Trobe to study outdoor education, right? And that, um, I guess, I'm interested to understand what was the driver there? What, what, how, did, how did you lead into that? Because a little bit different from photography. Yeah, so having given up on photography, I basically went, well, what can I do? And I saw that outdoor, you know, I was really into the outdoors and I really recognised the um, the idea behind outdoor education, which, you know, as you might know, is, is about taking kids into the bush and using activities like rock climbing, canoeing, bushwalking, cross-country skiing as a kind of medium for getting kids into the bush. And when you've got them out there, you can help foster an appreciation from the for the bush and for the natural environment and do some environmental education, help with some personal development type stuff, um, personal responsibility. So I really believe in the idea of outdoor education. And, that's- and it was a big idea at that point in time, right? Like, I mean, it was it was kind of coming into its own. That was a new course, as I understand, relatively at La Trobe. Like it was, it was kind of a, a pretty uh, popular movement at that point in time. Yeah, it might might have been fairly new, but it had a great reputation, that mm. course. And um, I mean, I think now the concept is, is, in, is as important as ever because, you know, as a society, we're so disconnected from the natural world, you know, we're sitting on our smartphones or back then the concern was people were sitting inside watching television. <laughs> <laughs> Things haven't got any better, you know. So yeah. we don't, as a, generally as a society, we're not very connected with the outdoors. And so it's really important. Um, and that was a brilliant course and it was a three-year degree course and uh, I, I did it and I had my eyes opened. I learned a lot. There's a lot of philosophy in there, which I thought was really valuable and really important. It also taught me on a practical level how to balance up, uh, you know, doing trips and then writing assignments, which is kind of how it felt years later when I was doing my photography business. I'd do a trip and then I'd come back and have to balance that and juggling those different things. So, yeah, it was a great course. I got a lot out of it and I really believed in it. Mm. But towards the end of the course, I started to feel that for me, working with kids was probably not my thing so much. I actually have a lot of respect for people who are good at working with kids Mm. and teachers. Like outdoor education is a a 24-7 job. You know, you've got a group of kids out on school camp. You're responsible and looking after them 24 hours a day for the whole length of the trip it's very stressful it's really hard work it's a lot of responsibility and I just I had no connect as a you know in my mid-20s I didn't really have a connection with kids and so I I kind of probably did well in identifying that in myself and I didn't really seek out any work in that area when I finished the course okay and so if we just go back to your youth did you have your own experiences with outdoor education or anything like what was your exposure to the outdoors earlier on that kind of gave you an interest in that area yeah I was very lucky at high school and then at Narrabunda College um, afterwards with uh, outdoor education courses and trips that we we did at school Um, and at you know when I was in year nine and ten we had a group of I had a group of friends it was about five of us and we'd go off on bushwalks and do little mini adventures the whole time. Like we'd go walking up on the main range, Kosciuszko main range in summer. And when we were 16, we went, we five of us flew down to Tasmania and we did the cradle mountain walk. So a group of five of 16 year olds just doing the cradle mountain walk. And I look back on that and I think that was actually really cool that we did stuff like that. It's just, that was what we wanted to do, have these little adventures. And we were kind of had that mindset that I touched on earlier about how I wanted to do mountaineering. And I, th- I think we all recognised that outdoor stuff was sort of where it was at for us. Um, so, yeah, I, we really got into that. And so that was always sort of a part of me. And 
just that exposure to the outdoors and Cam- Canberra is a brilliant place for getting into the outdoors. Mm. And then, so getting back to, to La Trobe, you finish your, uh, your degree uh, and then, uh, but you don't go into outdoor education. I mean, it's kind of like a period of, of uh, kind of unknowns for you. you what, what do you do yeah. then? <laughs> yeah, I did one day's climbing guiding. It's about the extent of the amount of work I did in outdoor education. Yeah. Um, and I ended up back in Canberra, um, uh, sort of living in Canberra, and I, I got work in outdoor shops. Mm. So I worked at Paddy Palin's mm. for 18 months just on the shop floor, and, and then I got a job for six months to help set up a new shop, outdoor shop in Canberra, managing that. But I kind of, during that two years that I spent in Canberra, I just really got into my climbing. Yeah. I kind of went, well, okay, so maybe outdoor education isn't my thing. Mm-hmm. Well, photography is not my thing. Um, but I just love climbing. And mm. I just, in Canberra, you know, we'd pop down to Nowra or mm. pop down to Point Perpendicular or pop out to Barumba. And so I just really got into my training and my climbing during that time. And I saved up a bit of money. Mm. And I just recognized that I really had this bug for climbing and I really wanted to explore it and see where it would take me. And it eventually took you to the Arapiles for a, uh, a pretty big stint where you just focused on your climbing solely. That's right. I, I saved up and um, I went full-time climbing for eight months. Yeah. Spent most of that at Arapiles. I did a little two-month holiday to New Zealand to Painsford in the middle but basically I set up at Arapiles. I got two tents and a massive tarp and a, a chair from the tip and made a little kitchen and so this is back in 1992, 93 mm-hmm. and this back then there was just a fantastic scene at Arapiles. and if you wanted to be a good climber in Australia back then that's what you did. Mm. You went to Arapiles, you hung out, you, you went full time and it's the only way that you would do enough climbing to get really good. Mm. Um, and it's different now, like you have the gyms, but in doing that full-time thing, you don't maybe climb as hard because you're not doing the same type of training that we have now, but you mm. do the mileage. You know, mm. you're on, on the rock just covering so much ground that you actually get technically, you develop your technical skills and your rock sense mm. quite well. And so I just, yeah, I did it and I lived it and it was a fantastic time. There was such a good scene there. Um, we're all little rebels and it was, <laughs> it was cool. It was cool. And, but, you know, when we were talking about it uh, the other day, you kind of mentioned that in one aspect, it was like being at rock bottom in a way you're on the dole, you're living out of a tent, you know? So there's this kind of side to it where it's very positive. You're out there climbing, doing what you want to do. But then this this other tension there as well, where, uh, you know, the way you're living, maybe it's not sustainable forever or? No, I was never really going to be sustainable forever. And, um, I guess sometimes you just got to go for things and not really look at a, there's going to necessarily be something come out of it. Yeah. Um, it was just, I wanted to be good at climbing and I wanted to live it for a while. Mm. Um, yeah. And Such- you, you did get good at climbing though. I mean, you, you know, um, I've, I've heard photos of, uh, oh, Simon was so ripped when he was during that time. Like, have you seen photos of Simon, how ripped he was? I was definitely ripped. I was definitely thin. I just wish I'd had a bit more power. <laughs> so we'd had the training that you have now. It would have been really awesome. But yeah, yeah, it's all what you do is relative to the day. So it was yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, I was happy with what I did yeah. and I lived it and, um, but there was so, no negative, like living, living on the dole. There was no shame in that, you know. No, no, And no. I had some savings that I lived off. Mm. And it wasn't really rock bottom. I, I always knew if it didn't work out or whatever, I, I could always go back to Canberra and live with my parents. You know, mm. I, I kind of had that comfort, that safety, safety net. Safety net to yeah, fall back on. That's right. So mm. I'm probably a little bit privileged in having that. Yeah. To be able to dabble in my... Uh, uh, my passion and stuff, which might have been a complete indulgence mm. um, in many respects. It's not really adding anything to society. And, mm. uh, you know, you appreciate the government grant, the doll for <laughs> pursuing your passion, but it's not really leading anywhere, is it? So, no. But you, I mean, you picked up on photography again during that period. Yeah. And so this is honestly what happened is like, because climbing full time, you, 
you can't climb. Well, I couldn't climb every day, and so I'd you know have several rest days in a week. And and on those rest days, it's like, well, what do you do? And and I, I guess it started to click with me that a lot of my friends and people that I was climbing with were just really awesome climbers and doing really interesting stuff. And there was no one around documenting what they were doing. And we're climbing over on Taipan Wall a lot. And it's just like this most gobsmacking wall on the planet and nobody's photographing it. And so I just started picking up my camera on rest days and taking photos. Um, and I didn't have a lot of money to spend. This is back when you shoot film and if you, yeah, it's not cheap. And um, and it just clicked with me. as like, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. I, climbing, it's a really, it means a lot to me. I love it. Uh, no one else is shooting this. And I just felt like a, I'd found a kind of purpose in uh, with the climbing photography and because I had nothing to lose, because, you know, I, I didn't have to pay a mortgage. I I didn't even have to pay rent at the time. Um, it kind of felt like I had nothing to lose but to give it a go and see what could happen. And so the the story is that uh, I met a guy who ran the, it's called a NICE course, a new enterprise, new enterprise incentive scheme course, which is basically a government scheme at, at the time, I don't know if it still exists, and it's a scheme to get people off the dole and to start their own businesses. And so basically, if you've got a small business idea, you can do the course for six weeks. In that time, you do a lot of research and you put a business plan together. Um, and so I did that course in Horsham and they approved my plan. And basically what it does is it gives you the equivalent of the dole for a year, which is gives you that opportunity to pursue your business. So I moved to Natamuk and I... I started my business, I got the grant, registered my business name, got a fax machine and and within about three months I published my first calendar, Australian Climbing Calendar, 1995. And yeah, some things in the business plan didn't work out at all and other things went much better than I expected and that calendar did really well and it helped keep me going to the second year. Mm. And just one thing led to another and another and another and things just for the next yeah, many years and probably still kind of happens in some ways is, is things would come along just when I'd sort of despair and go, oh, this is ridiculous. Why am I doing this? I'm about to go broke. I really can't justify this. Something would come along and uh, opportunities just started opening up and yeah. And you managed to kind of build out a life and a, and a business around it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was, you know, a few years into it, I... Took a phone call one day from a publisher who was looking for a photo and I couldn't help them, but I told them what I did and I said, yeah, but if you, know, if you wanted any climbing photos, I could help you. And they said, oh, that's interesting because uh, we want to do a book on Australian climbing. And I said, oh, that's interesting because I want to do a book on Australian climbing. And, you know, we had a meeting mm -hmm. and 10 months later we had a, a book at the printers. So, And which book was that? That's uh, Rock Climbing in Australia. Okay. Um, my first coffee table book. Yeah. So basically I actually moved back to Canberra to my parents and I'd spend three weeks on the road traveling around Australia. Then I'd go back to my parents for a week, you know, do stuff on the computer, editing slides, and then I'd head off again. And so in 10 months, uh, intensely I'd travel to Australia and put the material together for that first book. And that book led to uh, some awards and to an invitation from Rock and Ice to come and photograph American climbing, Rock and Ice magazine. And you know, just then I sort of was able to expand my photography from just shooting Australian climbing into shooting um, at different places around the world. And I, I managed to get it to work for quite a few years where I traveled the world to different climbing locations and I could publish calendars and books on the back of those travels. Were you able to climb at the same time and fit that whole life alongside it? Because here you're going to all these amazing crags around the world. Did you actually get to experience them on your photography rest days? <laughs> well, I, I got to experience the crags because I think it would have been criminal to go to those places and not climb. And I always made it a point to make sure I got to climb just to experience them. But at, at the end of the day, when you've only got a couple of weeks to photograph a really major climbing area, you have to work your ring off to to get the kind of type or quality of shots that I, I felt I needed or I wanted to get. So, yeah, I'd always climb, but it would always have to take a back seat to the photography. Mm. 
how involved is it? Can you run us quickly through like the process for, for going out there and like capturing a shot? Because I don't know if everyone can kind of appreciate what really goes into some of these photos. Well, there's different styles of climbing photography. So you have your fairly documentary stuff. You know, somebody's climbing a route and you just try and get in position in time and document it like whether you, know, you have to give yourself enough time to get in position or you just snap it. So you've got the documentary style, but the more um, creative side of climbing photography is what really interests me and drives me. So the process for me for that often involves just trying to think what the question and the question I ask myself is what would the ultimate shot of this climb or this area look like? So I try to envisage that in my mind and what, what, what would the best possible thing be? And then I try to deconstruct that backwards and end up with a plan to be in the right place at the right time to capture it. So, you know, it might be up on a big wall at dawn. So you, you figure out the logistics to make that happen and and work from there. And, and often it involves, you know, going out, abseiling down in numerous places, looking through the lens to, to pick an angle beforehand. So you're not just doing it on the fly when the climber is going for it. You've, you've got it figured out. Is that, is that like an analogy for how you've built up the business? Like you had this vision of what it would look like and then uh, and then you kind of worked towards building that up? Or did the early vision differ greatly from uh, what it looks like now? Yeah, the business kind of grew a bit organically in its own, <laughs> in its own way. Own way, yeah. yeah. I mean, like I said, that original business plan, there was aspects that didn't go very well in fact my original business plan i envisaged i'd be climbing would be one aspect of many adventure sports that i would photograph so i'd be shooting skiing and you know hang gliding paragliding whole bunch of different adventure things and i did a little bit of that but i quickly found that it was just a distraction from what I really wanted to do and and there was so much to shoot in climbing that I actually didn't have time to get distracted by the other stuff too much. And when I started traveling to shoot climbing, it's like, well, there's a whole world of climbing out there. And so I en ended up a lot more specialized than I had originally intended. What's the biggest epic you've, you've kind of ever gotten into trying to capture a particular shot? Oh, um, well, there's been a few occasions when I haven't been very comfortable, but... Uh, Probably one that stands out is uh, we were photographing in northern Spain at mm. this cliff called Riglos, which is a 300-metre-high conglomerate sort of bunch of domes. And the plan was that uh, we climbed this eight-pitch route up one of the, the domes and I was photographing a party to the side of us doing a route parallel to us. And Monique was my rope gun and she would sort of lead a pitch and then I, she'd fix the rope and I'd jumar it. And, mm. and then I was sh shooting the... The other team on the route next to us and that all went very well we made it to the top and it was late in the day sunset and we got to the top and the other party who were a bit quicker than us weren't there and the plan had been to meet up on the summit to get off and as soon as i got there we realized why they weren't there is because you couldn't stand up the wind we'd been climbing on the lee side of the the dome all day and we got to the top and it was like this gale force wind and you could barely even stand up it was so strong so we had to find the abseil anchors and start abseiling and we had to sort of do this one it's probably only like 60 meters of abseiling to get to this saddle where we would be able to get protection from the wind but it was just funneling through this gap and we just had an absolute epic with the ropes and ended up doing this abseil in three sections and every time we pulled the rope we got more committed and <laughs> Basically, we kind of thought we were stuck mm. and weren't going to get down. But anyway, we, we made it. Mm. Here to tell the story. Um, but it was a scare. Yeah. <laughs> Just rope management in high winds and yeah. stuff. It was all a bit stressful. And I think we were, I was probably a bit hypothermic and okay. um, just not thinking clearly. Yeah. And I think if our rope had hooked up on one of the abseils, we would have been in serious problem. And I, mm. I think back now and it's like, yeah, the ways we probably could have done that better mm. um but yeah yeah not many stories like that though i'm happy to say <laughs> I, <laughs> that's a positive thing yeah, yeah. I, I mean i used to do stuff with my climbing photography like when i was sort of fresh at it after 
doing a lot of climbing as a youngster. I'd, I'd solo up to the uh, top of Taipan with a camera bag and a 60-metre static and a rack on up sort of the grade 8 access route. And there's no way I would do that now. So I just have to do things differently. I just, you know, I work with people and we might be slower and stuff, but we set up the ropes in a lot more safer yep. way than I used to. Yeah. Yeah, the the uh, I guess you've got the experience now to maybe know a little bit better, and uh, you're a father now as well. So I guess having does that change it a little bit? Oh yeah, but almost it's definitely I, I yeah I want to be around to see my daughter grow up. But I also just I'm older. I don't feel the need to take that risk. Yeah. It's not it's not a necessary risk. There's enough necessary risk in climbing. You're often doing something that can go pear-shaped um so there's no need to take unnecessary risks so yeah i tend to play it a bit safe and yeah sure people can take their own risks and make their own judgments but you've got to do something that you're comfortable with yeah yeah no it's fair enough i find actually on touching on that this is a bit of a thing recently i've been noticing a lot of people photographing soloing and there's been a lot of promotion of that aspect of climbing which wasn't around I think so much in the past and over the years I've really not photographed soloing so much myself. I have on occasion but usually I've just stuck to things that uh, are really easy for that person. Like it's something that they do as a matter of course for them like I photograph Peter Croft or Joe Croft doing bard, you know, stuff that they do every day before breakfast. Not sort of taking photographs where people are really pushing it and I just don't feel that's the side of climbing that I'd needed to promote to make a successful business. Do you feel that others are promoting it for that advantage? Probably not, no. Okay. But they are promoting it. Yeah. You, you don't see that necessarily as a positive thing? I just don't see it as a necessary thing. Yeah. I mean, you can argue that it's just documenting climbing and it's a legit aspect of climbing but as soon as you are there with a the camera you are influencing that person's decision to solo unless they don't know that you're there so yeah like the whole um free solo thing with you know alex Hanold it's, it's very interesting to me it's been a fantastically received film but i do have questions about the whole ethics of the whole thing so that's just my personal feeling about it and i think you've got to be aware when you're in the media or documenting thing about the ethics of what you're doing mm. and the influences you might have mm. one thing i wanted to touch on was technology you know it's impacted life like just in general significantly since you know 25 years ago when you first started on site um i guess I want to get your viewpoint on how's that changed climbing media and climbing photography, you know, those, those Im improvements in photographic technology and changes like digital. Yeah, so there's a couple of major things. Obviously, digital cameras uh, changed the game massively because um, I used to shoot on film and it was probably each frame, each photo you took would cost you about a dollar. So if you weren't very good at nailing your exposures straight up, without being able to preview it, then you weren't ever going to be successful. So that was just basically a hurdle and um, you had to know what you're doing to be able to nail exposures. So for the less techno-apt mm. out there of us, um, did the older cameras have just like an auto setting where you could click a button and, and it would automatically do everything for you? Yeah, or but, is it, has that come a long way? Oh, yeah, but the auto exposure would be constantly fooled. I mean, if the, the climber's on the rock there, but you've got a huge amount of sky in the photo that's going to influence the exposure, it's going to throw it out. So what I would usually do is I'd put it in a spot meter mode and I would take exposure readings off different parts of the scene. And uh, I don't know if you know about Ansel Adams, a famous landscape yeah. photographer from America. He, he invented this thing called the zone system. And basically you'd preconceived on what parts of the scene would get, you know, what where would they fit in the tonal range? Yeah. Um, so by spot metering, you could sort of look at it and they go, oh, orange rock on type and wall. I want that to be two thirds of a stop overexposed. And so you'd meter it to that and then you could point the spot meter around and, and just check that the other parts of the scene fell into the exposure where you would want them. And I guess these days with a the camera, you can f 
take photos in a way where you can kind of select a setting, just click the button and then worry about that later on when you get to the computer, yeah? Well, so now, okay, so with digital, you can just, you can take a photo, look at it, you can see the histogram, the, the, the little the scale on it, like seeing where it's, the exposure's fitting on the, the scale from overexposed to underexposed and... Um, and so you can take a test shot, adjust your exposure, shoot again. But now, just in the last few months, I've just gone to a mirrorless camera. These just come out. So Nikon have released their Z6 and Z7, and I went for the Z6. And so basically now you're looking through the eyepiece and you're seeing a, a digital version right then through the eyepiece. So you can adjust your exposure before you even take the photo. And you can see, you can actually zoom in on your focus without having to take your IP away from the eyepiece and you can nail your focus before you even take a shot. So it's, it's awesome. And I was a very reluctant updater to, you know, to get into digital photography. Um, it was only in about 2008 that I changed and I waited a long time until the cameras got better and better to the resolution. And, and then I realized eventually the resolution of the digital had got so much better than film that I, I couldn't afford not to change. And although I kind of miss the, the color gamut that you get out of the, the film, it's still beautiful. Um, the digital, the convenience and the, the clarity of the resolution you get out of digital is just so much better. It's, it was impossible to ignore. So the barriers, I guess, for photography have lowered a lot since you first started. Now it's really easy for anyone to pick up, you know, a six hundred dollar camera and have that technology in their hands. How is how has that changed or an iPhone. photography <laughs> or an iPhone even? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's changed massively. Yeah, everyone's a photographer now, so there really isn't a barrier of entry at all. I mean, or it's just minimal, um, and. So uh, coupled with that, of course, you've got the internet. So, and then you've got social media with, you know, Facebook and Instagram and, and just everyone putting out. So now there's just a, a world of photographs out there, whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was the amount of imagery being produced was very small and the number of people who could consistently do it at a high standard was very small as well. So for me, there's a lot more competition in some respects. Um, there's also more opportunities in some ways, more ways of getting your work out there. Um, there's, there's drones as well too. I mean, you invest a lot of time in positioning yourself to take good photos of, of uh, climbers from a particular angle. Have drones kind of impacted or, or, or brought more competition to that aspect of it as well? Not for high-end uh, stills photography. Not yet. I've not seen it. I mean, I've been dreaming about remote controlled helicopters and years before even drones came along yeah. and I just thought oh when I'm retired I'm going to pull up to the car park in my van and pull out my remote controlled helicopter and, <laughs> and fly that off and yeah. get my shots but no the reality is uh, the drone like I got a drone last year for the first time and I, the main idea is for using it for guidebook photographs for topo photos um, and for video it's fantastic for video that movement that bird's eye perspective but for high-end still photographs, I'm not really seeing it threaten that yet. Um, you really need to go to a much bigger, more elaborate setup to, you know, drone photographs are horizontal in format. And for a lot of the photographs you might want to do with the stills, you might want to orientate it vertically in a portrait format. So unless you've got a really high-end drone, you're not going to get that for starters. Then you've got things like you're not allowed to fly drones in, the national parks or parts of the national parks unless you've got uh, permission specifically and a lot of people flaunt that law but uh, it's a fact so for me as a professional photographer it's it's not possible it's not possible yeah um i mean i could try and get permission for specific shoots but it's the hurdles are huge quite significant yeah um it's yeah it's annoying i don't know it's it's just not there and it doesn't give you quite the degree of control of being there i sometimes go to really elaborate setups for my shoots like rigging multiple ropes so i can get out from the cliff to get a really good perspective but the number of times you really need to go that much trouble and not that often it's more about thinking of clever angles i think and where you abseil down and yeah yeah, okay. Mm. So, um, talking about 
guidebooks. How did you get into guidebooks and, and making guidebooks? Oh, it started nearly 20 years ago. A friend of mine asked for some help to distribute a guidebook he'd, he'd produced. Mm. And we worked together for a while. And then it came pretty quickly obvious that to produce a good guidebook to someone like the Blue Mountains, you needed to work with lots of different people because nobody knows it all. Mm. Um, so I ended up working with a whole lot of different authors like Mike Law, John Smoothie, Glenn Short, Neil Doherty, and you know, in, in recent years, uh, people like Neil Monteith mm. and Paul Thompson have been incredibly helpful. Mm. And basically, you need to get information from a lot of different sources and a lot of people contribute just new routes or corrections and stuff which we work with to turn it into a, you know, a, a credible, authoritative resource for people. What do you think makes a good guidebook? Oh, um, good guidebook. Well, uh, obviously a good guidebook can help people maximise their time out climbing, like mm. get the most out of an area, give them the most, take advantage of the opportunities that an area presents. Um, another purpose of the guidebook is to document and act as a record of what's been done over the years. Um, it's a lot of work that goes into that side of it. Mm. Um, but it, probably the most important thing is the trying to convey information to help keep people safe mm. so obviously you've got the whole personal responsibility aspect mm. of climbing people have to take responsibility for themselves a guidebook will never be perfect um, people who even have a guidebook sometimes don't use it properly or mm. take account of everything that's mm. said in there mm. um, but there's a lot of things we can do in editing or authoring a guidebook to convey information that's really important mm. to people and will help them with their safety when they're out on the crag yeah okay what are your thoughts on climbing sites, you know, such as the Crag Mountain Project that I guess sometimes they can kind of facilitate the copying of guidebooks onto onto the web? <laughs> it's interesting you use the word copying because that has certainly happened and obviously copying copyrighted material is uh, illegal and mm. it leaves them wide open to mm. legal problems and... Uh, I think like the crag is a really useful resource mm. like it's a very valuable resource for me as a guidebook editor mm. um and i've spent a lot of time comparing information on there to what we have in the guidebook um but i, I think there's real fundamental problems with the whole crowdsourcing kind of concept because basically at the end of the day there's nobody taking responsibility for the actual mm. material that's on the the website i mean that's in addition to the whole mm. web versus print kind of different platforms different mm. mediums because there's a lot of things we do in designing a guidebook which is really good at conveying information the web has some other advantages mm. um, apps have even other advantages mm. but as to the information um, on some of those websites no one's actually taking responsibility for it so you end up with a situation where there's well-known death routes or really dangerous routes which have absolutely no warning on it mm. and to me as a a guidebook publisher or author that would be completely unacceptable and you just can't put something out there and not be covering really basic stuff like letting people know if a route is known to be dangerous or has had multiple people die on it even mm -hmm. like there's a case at mount york where routes had, more than one person has died on it mm -hmm. and on online there's no no warning whatsoever mm -hmm. that it's a potentially dangerous route mm -hmm. uh, we put a lot of effort into with the guidebooks, we put a lot of effort into conveying information, like mm. providing general uh, safety information at the mm. start mm. Uh, of each section. So you think it's important that people like actually sit there and absorb the information you guys have got? That's right. You can't, you you can't help people if they can't help themselves. You know, people yeah. are going to use the guidebook mm. and then have a little epic and then turn around and, and say... Oh, I had a problem because I didn't take any bolt plates when the guidebook's taken you, told you to take bolt plates. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you just can't help people, yeah. but can you? But, yeah. and, you know, no guidebook is perfect. No mm. resource is perfect. Mm. People have got to take personal responsibility, but we go to a lot of trouble to make sure the information is as good as possible and a lot of people contribute to mm. making sure that happens. Mm. So it's important for people to understand that information will have varying levels or degrees of quality depending on its source and they should consider the source when they're, when they're actually, you know, uh, taking it uh, on board. Yeah, I mean, by all means, 
get inf- your information from as many different sources as possible, but the guidebook is by far the most reliable sort of source of information there is. Um, it's not just information that's interesting to me as an author, not just routes that I've done, but when we cover an area, we cover all the routes and cover them as thoroughly and accurately as possible. Uh, we provide the access information, overview information, m- you know, maps, because just using a, a GPS coordinate or a, a Google map is doesn't often tell the whole story and you can end up uh, creating access problems like there's potential problems at a couple of different crags up here that are in the Blue Mountains have been happening recently and the information online is just wrong. So there's a lot, a lot that goes into producing a guidebook and I... I the more I've got into them over the years, the more responsibility I've, I've felt and the more I've got involved in issues like access and uh, making sure, you know, if an area is, um, you know, shouldn't have people going to it or, you know, it's on private property or there's issues of any sort, you know, I won't put it in the guidebook or we, we make sure the information is really uh, clearly comes across. Um, so it's a bit... I find it a bit weird that uh, online, just because it's online, people feel they can publish cliffs that are illegal or on private property or might have access descriptions that are wrong and going to create access issues. Um, so there's a real lack of responsibility. No one's mm-hmm. looking after it. Mm. You mentioned to me that you're working on this, uh, on uh, what seems like maybe it's a, like a digital version of a guidebook or something, that the Sloper app. Yeah. There. Yeah, so... Um, I've been working recently with a, an app company, a Canadian company's made a really awesome climbing guidebook app. And I've been working with them on the development of the app, the features, the way it works, just providing feedback, then they do all the work, obviously. But um, we're starting to release several of my guidebooks through the app. Okay. So, yeah, Sloper. Um, so people will just be able to install the app and then they'll get what they would get if they bought your guidebook separately or? Yeah, it's a um, smartphone app. It uses the, the quality curated content that we have in the guidebooks. It's got the topo photos and, you know, the lines come up and you can click on the lines and and all sorts of navigational things that you can do on an app. Like it's not just a website where A, it won't work if you're not online. Mm it's it's downloaded um so it work anywhere um but it's the navigation is designed for a, a smartphone so you're not just trying to navigate web pages it, it works really oh, so you not. can use the navigation on your smartphone to say find a crag and walk oh, so i mean navigating or? the app oh you mean navigating so, the app. You know, okay like, yeah yeah mm. but they are talking and working on ways to actually use the smartphone to navigate you to the crag we've got the guidebook maps on the app so you can use those, but it'll also have Google Maps and it'll also have other features for navigation as well. Um, so it's at the point now where we probably by the time this podcast goes to air, we will have released the Southeast Queensland guidebook on the app and the Grampians guidebook. And then over the next while, we'll look at putting some other guidebooks available that way. So the idea is you've got quality route descriptions. You can record and tick and you know, record your ascents or attempts, whatever. Uh, and then there's a social uh, interaction community side of it as well. Oh, so you can like, yeah, record your ticks and yeah. and use it as kind of your way to... And you can follow people yeah. and, mm. and have, you know... And can other... Is it crowdsourcing? Do people contribute no, or... No, well, people can put comments okay. on there. So that way you can give information to... Uh, the authors and I'm we're going to be giving my authors and contributors to the guidebook access to the back end so they can edit route descriptions and information so that that that'll come through be pushed pushed out to the smartphone um, but users won't be able to just edit a description but they can write a comment and then an editor will decide whether that information goes in they or how that it. information yeah. should go in mm. so it's the whole idea is to maintain high quality curated content and not let anyone just bring the whole thing down to the lowest common denominator and just get in there because they've got some personal issue with a bandwagon they're trying to push and start mucking with the quality of the information. 
over your career you've you've worked you know capturing photography and film and other things on some amazing projects a lot of these times international climbers come to australia and and you film them you've you did some filming of la dura dura for uh when adam andra sent that you, you get this exposure to all these um elite level climbers um is there anything that you've kind of like particularly observed with the climbers at that level that you could share with us? Oh, um, well, I'd be very privileged to work with many of these people. And I find climbing just interesting, like as a metaphor for life and in many ways. And the climbing community is kind of a microcosm of the broader community. And so it's kind of interesting because a lot of really high-end well-known climbers are sort of seen as role models or brand ambassadors and and as you get to know them you realize it's a bit more complex than that and that uh, there's a whole spectrum of people and the ones I really admire are, you know people like Chris Sharma and Steve McClure who are not only just absolutely brilliant climbers but absolutely positive people doing really good things for the community that you know Chris is always just putting out positive vibes it's you know, there's no skin off his nose to up somebody else. And Steve McClure is just super, he's a such a player, you know. And so I really admire people like that. And I've, you know, I encountered people whose character is not always the greatest. And, and yet they might be really worshipped as stars in the sport. And so I, I think people's character I find very interesting. Climbing can bring that out, whether it's, people are really solid character or whether you know none of us are perfect but you do see some stuff which I've seen some stuff over the years which does make me wonder you know whether it's people being sexist or misogynistic or just downright dishonest or whatever and I don't want to dwell on it because it's definitely a negative but it it exists so do you find that hard, like conflicting? Because you have to kind of take photos of these people and present them in the best possible light from a physical aspect, but then you see that in the in the back. Well, I certainly don't go out of my way to work with people who I don't respect. Yeah. Okay. okay so there's a bit of degree of self censorship that goes on. Yeah. On there, and I've sometimes worked with people, and then over time learned more about them, and sometimes regretted the time I've spent. But um, by and large, I gravitate to working with more and more positive people over the years and so that's fine i mean one of the things i've really tried to do over the years is work with as many different people as possible mm. you know like one of the things i'm most proud about with my australia book is i've got 230 different climbers that i photographed in that book so i'm trying to work with as many different people as possible catches capture a broad spectrum of the community and not just work with the top end climbers and put them up on a pedestal because there's so many people out there doing really cool stuff it doesn't have to be the the really strong climbers that get all the glory uh you're married to a particularly strong climber <laughs> monique forestia am i pronouncing the surname correctly forestia yeah that's yeah. right oh, good good She's a very accomplished Australian climber and, and quite focused in her climbing. Um, what, what What's it like to, I guess, be... Um, uh, many of us see, sit in the other seat, uh, but what's it like to, to be in that position where you're, um, you're in a relationship with someone who is quite intently focused on climbing? Um, it's actually kind of cool. I mean... Okay, I'm very busy with my business and makes very busy with her climbing and her coaching business. Uh, so we've got a lot to juggle there. And we we have a family. We've got a 10-year-old daughter, uh, Coco. She's amazing and been a fantastic, you know, addition to our lives. And uh, yeah, so Monique and I, we have to work things out so that we both get to uh, achieve and pursue our own dreams and goals. Um yeah, I'm forever indebted to Monique for all the help and support she gives me with my business and the different books and guidebooks that I've done that just wouldn't have happened without her support. So in turn, I, I'm more than happy to uh, support her with her climbing. And yeah, she's extremely driven and focused and she's not getting any younger. It's the things she's trying to achieve with her climbing are not getting any easier. Um, so I'll, I'll let her. You know, we used to often go off as a family for months at a time to Spain or somewhere. Now we kind of juggle it a bit more with our daughter. I'll let Monique, she'll go to 
Spain for six weeks and then she'll let me go to somewhere for a month to work on a guidebook or to do a, some photography or something. So, yeah, we work it out, but it's it's good. I, you know, one of the best things is Monique is really inspired about climbing, really motivated, and I find that really um, motivating and for myself. Um, I keep up with my training more than I probably would. Monique's been taking some strength and conditioning classes lately, so I join in with that, and yeah. it's really it's fun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it it helps. You know, I'm 52, but yeah. hanging out with trying to keep up with Monique a little bit helps me keep my hand in a bit with my own climbing. Because you still climb today. Yeah? yeah, no, not like what I used to, but I still yeah. climb, and yeah. that's the great thing about climbing. You can do it at whatever level you want, mm. or um and still enjoy it mm. i'm i'm aware that if i could lift my game a bit there's always more routes that you're mm. able to to mm. do and mm. you can enjoy the whole mm. climbing thing a bit more if you're climbing better mm. um so there's always that motivation to get better but at mm. the same time i know there's a lot of moderate classic routes out there that i can just go and have a great time on mm. that's actually one of the best things about working on a guidebook that you just get so in- inspired about all these great <laughs> routes out there that you want to do what, what about the Australian climbing media landscape? Like, what are some of your thoughts and observations on that? Um, well, it's certainly changing, and it's that's good. Change is good, I mm. think. And you know, it's before years gone by, we only had one magazine, Rock mm. Magazine, and I guess there was always some underground magazines. Mm. Um, I was actually involved with a project called Crux Magazine mm-hmm. um, some years ago, which was very cool. We got several issues of a print magazine out there which were really cool um but yeah i think there's certainly room for i'd actually like to see like a a a central place for australian climbing media because at the moment if there's an issue or some news how do you find out about that like not everyone's on facebook and even then it's hit and miss what groups you might be following Mm. uh we haven't really got a magazine that's covering mm. climbing uh, throughout Australia objectively mm. um, in every respect. So, yeah, I'd like to see something more central. Mm. I think what you're doing with this podcast is really cool and I hope you'll interview lots of different people from all sorts of views and places and not just the same old people over again. <laughs> or you can so you don't want to come back for a second yeah, podcast? You can come is that back for a second time, but... <laughs> I think there's a lot of other people who deserve a, a shot first. So. Indeed, indeed, yeah. What do you see as the main issues facing climbing these days? Uh, well, right now, climbing is undergoing tremendous growth, you know, because of the gyms, the Olympics, um, and climbing is just a lot more accessible now outdoors than it was. And and so that growth is is the issue, I guess. Um, you know, is it going to affect access? We've got to make sure that it doesn't. Um, we also need to make sure people are educated, understand you know concepts like personal responsibility, and that's a really hard concept to understand. It's very easy to point fingers and blame, but you know if you're lying on the ground in pieces, you know you've got to take responsibility for your decisions that led to that situation. Uh, I've experienced it, and it's really hard. Um, so yeah, personal responsibility, safety, education, access, um, yeah, we, we, you know, in New South Wales, we, we don't have an access body. I mean, the Sydney Rock Climbing Club are, are really trying to get things going there to, cause if we had a major access problem here at the moment, then we're not very well equipped to deal with it and, in Queensland and Victoria, they're well ahead of us here. I mean, we've got access problems in the Grampians at the moment. We need to um, be prepared as a uh, community to look after look after our interests, and deal and with that, yeah. deal with that stuff. Yeah. And so, I mean, in climbing, we have this culture of being a bit irreverent mm. and sort of sticking it up authority and being a bit rebellious mm. and stuff. And, and that was very cool when I was growing up in the 80s and stuff. And and now it's climbing's grown to the extent that it's, it's a bit harder to just continue on like that. It's not mm. as hel- it's not very helpful anymore. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a kind of a tall poppy aspect to that where people in Australian climbing have been 
serious and doing really cutting edge things have often been dragged down um which is not a positive um but i think yeah there's bigger issues too now that we need to be ready for as a community yeah you've traveled a lot obviously and you get to experience these cultures around the world different climbing cultures in different areas um particularly when you spend extended periods of time somewhere making a guidebook uh is there anything that kind of then stands out when you look at Australian climbing culture that makes Australian climbing culture particularly unique and Australian? Oh, the, there'd be that irreverence thing I touched yeah. on. It would Australian climbing culture has got that element of just taking the piss out of people that take mm. themselves too serious or authority figures, you know, you know, part of the culture is to undermine them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's funny because now as a guidebook publisher and author and photographer, I guess I could be seen to be a bit of an authority figure. And, and there's certainly people have had shots at me over different things over the years, often quite unreasonably, I feel. Mm. And it's funny because I grew up in that culture. I see it. Mm. I understand it. But I can play the game too. You know, I'm not <laughs> stupid. I've been around. So it's kind of, okay, it works both ways, fellas. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. What am I saying here? <laughs> I think we've outgrown that a bit. Mm. Yeah. So when we arc back to the beginning, you're you started photography. This this dream to travel the world, and you you were going to be on beaches, <laughs> taking photos and so forth. And now you're you're traveling the world. It's not beaches and and. Uh, but uh, is, are you living the dream? Have you built this dream up for yourself over time? Do you feel that you've got to that? Um, I've created a shitload of work for myself. I mean, <laughs> I, I have been living the dream for many years. Yeah. I think, yeah, as the guidebook side of the business has become more important and the and probably uh, the last few years I've slackened off a bit on my photography a, a bit and I kind of want to re- read a focus on that because I still have things with my photography I want to uh, do over the next few years and I hopefully I've got the guidebook situation under control because I feel a real responsibility like I feel like I dug myself a big hole by getting into guidebooks it's like now I've got into them I need to sort of make sure the quality is there and so they just take up more and more time and that's distracting um, but yeah it is a dream um, but uh, yeah I work really hard with different projects but oh geez i've had a great great life and some great opportunities because i've just gone after my dream and i do consider myself very lucky to have had that opportunity and i'm i'm really glad that when i was 25 i just went for it you know or 26 i just i went after my climbing and then i went after my photography and and yeah 25 years after starting the business i'm still going and there's lots of opportunities um yeah, Monique and I started a side business recently called climbingaustralia.com.au and that's a business that we started to cover Monique's outdoor coaching because she coaches indoors. She's New South Wales state coach, but she does some outdoor as well. Um, some trips we might run, like ho- hosting some climbing trips or um, some workshops we might run and uh, maybe I might do some photography workshops and stuff there's just so many opportunities uh in climbing at the moment it's really really interesting time to be involved in this and so i don't see myself slowing down (laughs) i hope you all enjoyed that interview thanks to simon for sitting down with me to share those stories and experiences Over on thelayback.com, you can find links to Simon's website for on-site photography and to the other projects he talked about in the interview. Thanks again to everyone out there for sharing the podcast around on social media, for liking it, for sending me all the positive feedback about the podcasts that have come out so far. It's really appreciated. 
Also, uh, get online and join your local peak climbing body in your state. If you're in Queensland, that's ACAQ. You can donate to them. In New South Wales, it's the Sydney Rockies. Uh, in Victoria, it is the VCC and Cliff Care. Uh, there's a lot of access issues going on uh, in, in a couple of states at the moment, and those organizations need our support. If you climb outside, uh, you... I think have a responsibility to kind of contribute and put something back in. Uh, and that's just uh, one thing that you can do. Now, wherever you are headed to climb today, may your falls be clean and the catches soft. May that hold your lunging fall be a bucket and may you latch it anyway, even when it's not. To take us out, here's an interesting clip of Simon explaining to an ABC News interviewer how climbing photography actually works is climbed some of the most recognised challenges in the world in 18 countries and documented them with his camera. And he joins us now. Simon Carter, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Andrew. How most climbers, obviously, well, all climbers, need two hands oh, to, yeah. to, to climb. <laughs> yeah. You're using a camera. How do you do it with, obviously, holding one hand with the camera and another hand trying to hold on to the, to the cliff? Yeah, well, no, you, you can't do that, obviously. So... Um, often we climb around to the top of the cliff or, or something and I, I set up an abseil rope, a static rope and abseil down and then I have these clamps that lock off onto the rope and I can hang back and start to operate my camera and, and take photos of the climbers as they, they come up. So there's a, often a lot of rigging involved, getting the ropes in position so that I can be in a stable position and, and safe and yeah that's half the work is or, 90% of the work is getting the ropes rigged properly. And having said that, you have a fear of, of climbing, or is it a fear of heights? Uh, I don't have a fear of heights so much. I mean, I think we've all naturally got a fear of heights, but if you're doing it a lot, you sort of overcome that. I have a fear of falling and, and dying, I guess, and so um, I'm very careful to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, I'm sure all climbers yeah. would have that sort of fear. I yeah. mean, they've obviously got to be safe yeah. in what they're doing, but you say... You take those precautions, yet you get some spectacular results. Yeah, yeah.